This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for Racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Hong Kong-based Darren Flindell got the shock of his life late in 2014 when he received a surprise phone call from Matthew Hill revealing that he intended to quit his role as Sky Racing's number one Sydney race caller. Matthew had accepted an offer to call AFL for ABC Grandstand and to work for ABC News Radio. The unexpected retirement of Greg Miles two years later brought Matthew back into the racing game. Darren was working at Hong Kong's famous international meeting only a few weeks later when approached by Sky Racing CEO Brendan Parnell, who was in town for the races. Brendan offered Darren the opportunity to return to Australia as head Sydney caller. After 16 happy and very rewarding years in one of the most vibrant racing centres in the world, Darren felt the time was right. He was on a night flight out of Hong Kong on March 15, 2015, just hours after calling the Hong Kong Derby. On the 17th, he called the Rose Hill Barrier Trials in tandem with Josh Fleming. On the 19th, he called a Warwick Farm meeting and two days later, he was at Rose Hill to call Vancouver home in the Golden Slipper. In the five years since that hectic return to Sydney, Darren Flindell has seen some extraordinary changes to Sydney racing. He got to call 24 of Winx's historic 33 straight wins, while his call of Shatak was second TJ Smith in 2017, will be long remembered. It's a great pleasure to welcome to our podcast, Darren Flindell. Thanks, John. That is some introduction. Mate, do you think this nickname is a result of your Twitter account name, at Hong Kong Darren? I'd say so, and... uh Despite all the years that I've still been here, I've kept it as, as HK Darren because I think um, it just uh, differentiates me from Darren Beedman, for instance, or Darren Pierce at work. Yes, yes I think Hong Kong Darren, at least uh, we know who we're talking about. That first week back on the job in Sydney was hectic beyond description. To be honest, John, that was the most hectic period of my of my entire life because as you described it hours after calling the hong kong derby i was straight to the airport i'd already pre-packed all my luggage uh in advance uh the overnight flight not much sleep i arrived in sydney at um i think about 7 30 a.m went straight to sky channel to pick up the the company car uh then went back to my hotel and i had to find a place to live 
And at that stage, I didn't realise how difficult that was going to be as well, um, finding an apartment to rent. And I went down to the, the local real estate agent and I went to a few places mm. and everybody was going to get back to me, but nobody ever did. <laughs> and I ended up staying in this hotel for three weeks before I could find a place to rent. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. So on top of dealing with the Golden Slipper and then the, the championships, I had that worry of um, where am I going to live? Um, I can't keep paying hotel rates indefinitely. Mm. Um, I need to find somewhere ASAP, and eventually I found a little boat at, at Camperdown that tied me over for a couple of years. Mm. I mentioned that Warwick Farm raced on the Thursday of that week because the Newcastle Newmarket was given the Wednesday date. Now, your first actual race call in Sydney in a long time was a maiden two-year-old, and little did you know that the winner mm. was destined for stardom. It's amazing. I've still got that race book in my very tiny apartment here. And, um, yes, when you open to page one of Warwick Farm on the, um, what day are we looking at, the, the, the 19th of March, mm. in the triple crown jacket, an unraced maiden called Red Zell was able to win comfortably. And uh, it, it's one of those funny little race books that, um, I don't think I could ever throw out now, uh, given his uh, his ongoing fame of being a dual Everest winner. And the second biggest prize money earner in Australian racing history. Mm. And I was pleased to say um, I was able to, to find him in the selections as well. <laughs> good, good work. <laughs> now, Darren, what were your inner thoughts at this stage with the Golden Slipper only two days away? Were you in control or did you think for a fleeting moment that you may have bitten off more than you could chew? I think, to be honest, I was too busy and had too many worries on my mind to um, to get too stressed or too worried about the golden slipper. I think other people were worried on my behalf, and um, I think when it got down to the to the to the golden slipper, whilst I was I was very nervous, mm. I was very pumped up and and ready to go. I think it was the, the weeks that followed the Golden Slipper that made me think perhaps I had bitten off more than I could chew. Mm. Well, within a few weeks of your return, you noticed a few caustic comments were starting to appear on Twitter. Typically, they became more frequent as other people with nothing else to do jumped on the bandwagon. Mm. It was the last thing you needed as you were struggling to establish an identity back in Australia? I think as you'd appreciate, John, the, the race calling caper is a fair percentage is confidence. And when you, you know you're making some mistakes, but you think, well, they're not big mistakes, but through the social media, people are, are making it sound like they're big mistakes, and then the pressure does start to build up. I... I always enjoyed the, the social media, or when we say the social media, referring to Twitter, when I was in Hong Kong, I found that most people were very respectful and they would, they would contact you or want to um, communicate talking about form or certain races. But here, mm. the level of vitriol that was building up, the way people would speak to you, I was, I was very taken back because I thought, well, I don't know this person and they don't know me. Mm. But they're speaking to me like I've done something horrible to them. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that is the level of that hate that builds up on this uh, on on Twitter in particular. And I was very taken back by it. And that persisted for quite a number of weeks, or did it run into months? Oh, definitely months. 
Yes. The, uh, the that initial period of the the autumn carnival of 2015, it was it was just festering. And uh, to be honest, I think half the problem, John, was that as you mentioned in the introduction, I I took over from Matt Hill. Matt decided to move on to follow his passion to call AFL, and he went to Victoria. So I was always replacing Matt Hill. It was just the timing of the way everything worked out with a collapse of TVN and Sky Channel getting all of the rights to Sydney. I think a lot of people viewed me as the one that took Mark Sheen's position mm. and weren't aware of the fact that, well, TVN has collapsed and I was already here to replace Matt Hill, not to replace Mark Sheen. And I think that's what started a lot of the social media hate to start with. Well, I'm pleased you've had the opportunity to explain it one more time. It was through no fault of your own uh, that this, um, this, these turbulent times occurred in Sydney racing media. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I, I definitely felt for Mark Sheen because he is an outstanding race caller, absolutely outstanding. And for him to be out of work, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem right, but that's... This is one of these things that, that can happen in the industry, and I know a lot of people were upset about it. And I mean, I, um, I'm disappointed as well that I don't have a colleague to work alongside in the box like yourself and Ian did and others for all those years. Mm. That, that camaraderie that you built up, uh, the way it is now, the race caller basically sits in the box on his own all day. Mm. You cannot get sick now. Um, mm. Because there is no backup. I guess in, in previous eras, if you did happen to go downstairs and um, you got caught caught up talking with somebody and you actually did miss a race um, or you were out of breath running upstairs, there would always be a backup. But I can't take that chance of, uh, of really leaving the box to, uh, to allow the possibility of something going wrong like that. Mm. You've got to be there near that public address switch at all times. Mm, yes, because the, the phone never rings and that's a part of the modern-day caller as well. You're the, the, you're the caller and secretary. You have to take all the phone calls. And mm. uh, the moment one jockey falls ill just before the first race, you know you're going to get a lot of phone calls during the day. It's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be messy. The first two occasions on which you got to call Winks, the budding legend was beaten in the Vinery Stud Stakes and the Australian Oaks. You missed her next two runs in Queensland, obviously, which she won, and then you saw all of her remaining Sydney runs. You speak often of the day she fell out of the barrier in the 2017 Warwick Stakes. If she was going to get beaten, that was the day. Well... When the gates opened and she stumbled out and her, her name was announced as being the last one out of the gates, the groan from the crowd, it was a very good crowd that day at Randwick, and the, uh, the, the disappointment and uh, the tension was building a long way from home. And personally, I wasn't too concerned about it in the first 400 metres or so, but once they started to approach the home turn and she's still back last and she hasn't really started to improve her, her position. And at that stage, Fox Play was a bit of an up-and-comer from the Chris Wally yard, and she had the run of the race in behind, and she darted up the inside and dashed to the front. And I kept looking back for winks and thinking, my goodness, she's still that 
about 10 lengths behind at the 300 metres. And this is a very exciting filly dashing to the front. And that was about the only time in her career when I thought, and uh, and thank goodness I didn't say it, mm. but to myself I thought, I don't think she can get there. But what I'll do, I'll just keep calling her the facts. Mm. She's she's eight lengths away or six lengths away, giving away a big start. And then, then when she just put in that famous finish down the outside and the wider part and the – you can just sort of see the momentum there at Ramwick. She hadn't got anywhere near the leaders yet. You thought, she's sweet, she'll get there. Mm. And I thought, oh, that was the moment I got goosebumps calling her. And I wouldn't mm. say that happened all the time. No. But because I thought she was going to get beaten and the, the suspense was building up, for me that Warwick Stakes victory was the most exciting win and, and the call I enjoyed the most. You were very involved with the hype when she had her last start on her home track at Rose Hill. It was her fourth win in the George Ryder. You, you were very involved. I, I listened to the replay again only a few days back. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think I, I enjoyed the Rose Hill wins because we very rarely saw her out there. Mm. And... Um, Yes, that was, that was a special moment because the crowd really, really appreciated her that day. And sometimes you you feel the reaction of the crowd at Ramwick is a different result to Rose Hill. And the noise I heard at Rose Hill that day, I haven't heard since I was a kid. Mm. Then came the swan song, the last hurrah. The day when Randwick reverberated as it did in the days of Kingston Town and Tullock and Burnborough and more than likely Farlap's era. It was a powerful mood and you were playing to a packed house. That was the day I opened the window in the broadcast box because I didn't want to miss a moment of the, uh, of the magic in the, in the post-race scenes, mm. watching Hugh just canter her down all the way down the straight and then coming back at a very leisurely pace to make sure that every single person in the crowd, as far down as you could go, was able to get a glimpse and some could even get a pat mm. of winks and just sitting there and just watching all of that unfold, thinking to myself, wow, I will never, ever be a part of anything like this ever again. Mm. This is just a, a moment to, to capture and, and treasure. You got to call Chautauqua only nine times because he often raced in Melbourne. He won three of those nine consecutive wins in the Group 1 TJ Smith. His third win in that race in 2017 stunned the crowd and stunned the commentator. The most incredible win I have ever, ever seen um, the most enjoyable race that I have ever called, and I don't like to say will ever call, but I still believe that that is the case. Mm. For him to win that race, every time I watch the replay, I still have to have a little look at the screen because there's still an element of doubt. Oh, surely he doesn't win from there. Yes, how did he do it? And yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it personally a thousand times. I know he he won it, mm. but it's just the most incredible win I have ever seen. And um, 
I mean, English was no mug. She was going extremely well. And once she got to the front 100 out, the race was all of hers. Yeah. And I, I think, I'm not sure if you if you saw this footage, but on the day, the camera was on Gay Waterhouse. Mm. And she was cheering home English. Mm. And then she spotted Chautauqua in the last moment. And uh, if you're a lip reader, yeah. Gay said a very rude word. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure all of uh, the supporters of English said the same word. You're yeah, talking yeah. about a mayor, Darren, who had won two Group 1 races. That's right, yes. And um, my my local pub is the is the Doncaster Hotel, so I see Charles Kelly on a regular basis, New Haven Park with the, with the mm. owners there of English, and mm. her name comes up many, many nights in conversation. Mm. You know, the bizarre method... Uh, Shatak would devise to escape his race day commitments, may well <laughs> stamp him as the smartest horse of all time. Who knows? But he was a massive talent. He won $8.8 million and he, he won't be forgotten in a hurry, certainly while Darren Flindell is president of his fan club. And I'm pleased to say as well, John, that I was in Hong Kong when he won the the Chairman's Sprint Prize uh, that year as well. I, I went up... Basically, I, I ran a court and got a media pass to to be there for the for that particular meeting, mm. and I sat right up in the back of the grandstand there. Um, I couldn't hear any English; it didn't matter. I knew who he was, and mm. I was only watching one horse. And the buzz of being in that grandstand at Sha Tin, because mm. I'd never experienced that before. I'd right. always been actually in the commentary box. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a special moment watching him win the group one in Hong Kong, and uh, and the celebrations that followed in Lang Kwang, Lang Kwai Fong that night was mm. a night to remember um, some of it. Well, just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast, Darren. Back with you after this. Sunday, July the 5th will be a unique day in the long history of Inglis when two major sales come together as traditional physical auctions at the world-class Riverside Complex at Warwick Farm. At 10am sharp, Easter Round 2 will get underway with 94 outstanding lots by world-class stallions like Brazen Bow, Deepfield, Dundeal, Exceed and Excel, Not a Single Doubt, Fastnet Rock, Frankel, I Am Invincible, Lonro, Schnitzel, Piero, and So You Think, with first season sires like American Pharaoh and Capitalist represented. English have decided to bring the famous scone sale to Riverside this year with a catalogue of 156 lots. This auction will begin immediately after Easter Round 2 concludes. All horses will be at Riverside from Thursday, July 2nd for your inspection. Who would have thought the famous Easter sale would have a winter session? Who would have dreamed the popular scone sale would come to town? English have taken extraordinary steps to accommodate vendors and buyers in extraordinary times. It's really happening. Easter Round 2 and the scone sale together under the same roof on Sunday, July 5th. You've been part of an extraordinary time in history when you've been calling to empty houses on the Sydney racetracks. Now, you've already said that racetrack atmosphere can really lift a caller. Have you been conscious of the eerie silence? It's a 
I think it's just one of these things, John. It's the it's the current era that we're in. Uh, we have to accept it. I think at the end of the day, for a racing commentator, it's not a big deal. I think if I was a rugby league commentator, for instance, I'd be missing it a whole lot more. Mm. But I think well, we call a lot of Wednesday race meetings, so we're used to calling to very small crowds or no crowds. So mm. it's it, it's disappointing, but it's it doesn't really change the job, to be honest. Mm. You grew up in the inner Sydney suburb of Clempton Park near Canterbury Racecourse, and you developed an interest in racing very early. What motivated that interest initially? I have to say it was just the uh, being in with a, a certain crowd of friends at school, uh, whether it might have been termed as the wrong crowd. Um, <laughs> as as 15-year-olds, we were notoriously getting sick on Wednesdays, every second Wednesday at around lunchtime. And we're all sort of disappearing in different directions, but we'd all end up at the Canterbury Racecourse. <laughs> and... Um, obviously, at that age, we were basically going to the track with pocket change. You'd have to um, define what we'd classify as a guardian to get you into the track. Mm. Uh, but because I was quite tall and I looked the oldest of our crew, I was generally the one to put the bets on. And it's quite amazing when you reflect back. And I see some people post results of certain races from the mid-'80s at Canterbury. See, and the moment I see it, I think, Yes, we, we backed that. There were just a certain band of horses that um, that had a big following with us, um, horses that most people wouldn't even remember or know them, like Jogger or mm. Rocky Ruler or Reuters News, mm. um, Hussar's Command, that just names that popped in my mind, that we had very good winnings on there at Canterbury. They were, they were Canterbury specialists, mm. and I learned from a very young age we treated Canterbury like it was Harold Park. You wanted to be on the pace and on the fence. Mm. So you would do your form accordingly. And I find some 35 years later, nothing's really changed at Canterbury. Mm -hmm. Well, it was clear by your mid-teens that you were a born punter and the punt certainly interested you much more at this stage of your life than the possibility of a media career. Funnily enough, it was it was a chance occasion as an English assignment calling a rugby league game into a cassette uh, a cassette tape with a mate of mine who was a Cronulla fan. I was a mad Balmain fan and he was a Sharks fan. Mm. And we thought, we'll call this game of rugby league into a tape recorder. And we sat there in the crowd and we got very animated. We, were, we sort of modelled ourselves a little bit on the Greg Hartley and Peter Peter style mm. of commentary. Anyhow, we submitted it to our English teacher and she was so impressed with the originality of the whole concept, she gave us 100%. And that was sort of what sparked things off initially, um, that I thought, um, I do have a bit of interest uh, in broadcast or, or journalism. And I would regularly take the tape recorder out to Canterbury races as well. I'd sit right down at the end of the grandstand, down at the what would be about the 300-metre mark. Mm. And it was, it was hard to get away from people even back then on a, on a Wednesday, but that's, that's where I'd sit, right at the end of the grandstand at Canterbury and just practice calling the races. Bad angle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would do a little bit of ear-wigging to yourself or, um, or Jeff Marnie, I think, was, was the on-course commentator at the time, and I might, yeah. might have to pinch the finish off of one of you guys. <laughs> 
Now, Darren, we're talking mid-80s here and you had two particular favourites out on the racetrack and they were Emancipation, whose deeds, as good as she was, have been swept away by some degree by the great mares who followed. And the other one was a very genuine sprinter called At Sea. I was just looking at their records the other day. You know, At Sea won six Group 2s. Emancipation won six Group 1s. Oh, wasn't she a, a darling there, Emancipation? That was the very, very first time I went to a race meeting. My mother uh, took me uh, with my stepfather at the time and uh, I've still got a photo, uh, the photo album of a very dorky 13 or 14-year-old I was then mm. sitting in the grandstand at, at Ramwick and that was the day Emancipation won. So mm. that was my earliest recollection but the consistency of of at sea um he was some horse and i have to say in that same era as well i was going to the trots a lot as well mm-hmm. and um and saw bag limits sit three wide the entire trip one night to win a harold park cup there mm-hmm. which i found quite exciting i i wasn't just about the gallops then i also liked the oh i love the trots uh, mm-hmm. every friday night at harold park um, that was a treat. And the Greyhounds too? Which, and the Greyhounds, yes. Yeah, you, your first paid job emanated uh, as a result of the Greyhound industry, but we'll get to that later. Now, Darren, by 1986, you were 17 years old, a confirmed racing nut and an established punter. Now, how would a 17-year-old scrape up $200 to put on bounding away in the Golden Slipper of 1986. That'd be a $1,000 today. Mm. I was a, uh, a paper boy mm. um, d- delivering the, the newspapers, which in itself didn't derive a, a, a tremendous income, but it was a bit of a networking position. I'd find I was in a, in a community there and a lot of the um, – a lot of the elderly people couldn't actually get over their homes to to get certain basic requirements. So I'd do their shopping as well. I'd deliver the newspapers and do the shopping. So I was earning a handsome little wage there as a paper boy. And uh, that certainly helped to build up the punting bank. Well, bounding away, got home in that slipper, not by a fancy margin. I think right on the line it was about a neck and a, a, a young horse called... Just Blooming was storming down the outside with Mark de Montfort on board. You would have been shifting the winning post. Yes. Um, I learned that terminology, kick, kick, kick. <laughs> <laughs> yelling that. Um, I, I recall most of the fun was the build-up of being in that massive betting ring at Rose Hill and walking up and down, up and down with the with – the, um, all that money in my hand and just waiting to get the best price. And uh, from memory, I think I got 13 to 8. Mm. Um, and that was the best best you could possibly get. And oh, I think it taught me a lesson even at a very early age that backing short price favourites is not for me. It's far more fun to have $5 on something at 20 to 1 than it is mm. $200 at 6 to 4. It's too much, too much pressure. Mm. 
Bounding away was a bonnie race filly. She won nine altogether. She'd won the Blue Diamond before she came back to Sydney mm. for the slipper. She won a flight stake. She won the Orlando Classic and later she won the AJC Oaks. I, With the possible exception of Bragger and Tullock, I think Tommy Smith derived more joy uh, from bounding away than most of the horses he trained because he bred her, he owned her, trained her, uh, and was there on the day to see her win that slipper. And if you've seen that old Channel 9 footage up in the stand as they hit the line, uh, I've never seen Tommy Smith as excited as he was that day. He loved that filly. Well, she, she was something special to make it five out of five in the slipper. And and you mentioned the Oaks victory, mm. and that was a week after running in the derby as well. Yes. They don't make them like bounding away anymore. Later, the thought of sports presentation crept into your mind. You enrolled at the well-known Max Rowley Radio School, which has developed the talents of many a budding announcer. What did you get out of your time there? I'd say um, the, the contact primarily. Um, I, I did my time at Max Rowley and for a lot of it I thought, I, I'm not getting a lot out of this because I don't want to be a radio announcer, um, a, a cheerful radio announcer, reading news or reading weather, etc. I, mm. I merely just want to do racing. Mm. But I did my time with Max and it gave me that foot in the door when he said he, uh, w- one of his, one of his uh, clients was the announcer at the Wentworth Park Greyhounds and uh, from time to time he'd like the night off, would you like to go and, and fill in? And I thought, oh, beautiful. This is exactly what I was looking for. Anyhow, um, I ended up taking over that role full time at Harold Park Dogs and that was the transition period. It started at I think Harold Park, and then we went to Wentworth Park when the when the new track reopened. Yep. And um, yeah, for a number of years, that was my gig doing the on course announcements on Mondays and, and Saturday nights. Um, originally, starting with cars with lights on because there were lots of them at that stage and lost kids, etc. Mm. But it was just that initial door that opened into the racing industry at a very young age where I was sending cassette tapes to radio stations and different commentators, and, and I guess as you did at that time, but this was the first concrete job that I got. Mm. You remember what the pay was? <laughs> um, to be honest, no. Light, no, I, very light. <laughs> I, I remember my very, very first job out of school. It didn't last very long. It was at, mm. the, at the Commonwealth Bank. Yep. And it was something like $85 a week. <laughs> and I thought, you're better off robbing these bastards than working for them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Darren, I'm going to bring the curtain down on segment one of our podcast. When we come back, I have many more questions to ask, including uh, to learn a little bit about your time at the Mossvale Dogs. Back with Darren Flindell for segment two A Click Away. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. 